Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, and this is Ordinary Equality. You must remember that when the Constitution was written, that women were regarded as property. The struggle for an Equal Rights Amendment traces back to 1923 when feminist Alice Paul wrote the words that became ERA. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. So as we march today, remember, forward together, backward never. If you could change one thing about the Constitution, what would it be? I would add an Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution. Today, the House of Representatives cleared a hurdle to make the Equal Rights Amendment the 28th Amendment to the Constitution. The House voted to remove a deadline for states to ratify the amendment, which would guarantee women the same legal rights as men. On this show, we've talked about abortion rights crusaders and women's rights activists, people putting everything on the line to make our society more just. I'm so excited to continue our work on a brand new season, this time in collaboration with Womanica, another podcast from Wonder Media Network. Each episode will highlight a different woman who is pivotal in the fight for equality under the law. Today's woman was unrelenting in her fight for equality. When the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920, after years of fighting for the right of women to vote, she wrote, Men are saying perhaps, thank God this everlasting fight is over. But women, if I know them, are saying, now at last we can begin. She understood that gaining the right to vote was the first step in something much bigger. Crystal Eastman was born in Glenora, New York in 1881. Her parents, Samuel Eastman and Annis Bertha Ford, met at Oberlin College. Samuel was studying to become a minister and Annis to become a teacher. But Annis ended up following her calling instead. In 1890, she became one of the first women ordained as a congregational minister in New York and even had her own church. This position was rare for a woman to have at the time. And Annis became something of a North Star for Crystal. Crystal's mother was the single most important influence in her life uh, in every way. That's Amy Aronson, who teaches journalism and media studies at Fordham. Amy also wrote an amazing biography called Crystal Eastman, A Revolutionary Life. And she's going to help us tell Crystal's story today. I think actually that that Crystal's mother was more influential upon her in the things that she did and the way that she operated outside of her congregation through her suffragism, through her anti-militarist attitudes, through some of her proto-gender critiques of masculinity and militarization. Her mother's leadership role was not the only thing that distinguished Crystal's childhood. Crystal Eastman was, was raised in an egalitarian household at a time when, you know, this was virtually non-existent. Crystal was encouraged to speak her mind. She once complained to her parents that she should not be the only child to do women's work. After that, her parents distributed household chores among their children on a gender-neutral basis. Crystal, as a little girl, was, you know, kind of non-traditional in many of the ways that we think of in terms of gender. She was athletic. She was tall. She was outspoken. She was fearless. 
the family referred to Crystal as a mighty girl. Crystal graduated from high school in 1899 and attended Vassar Female College. She distinguished herself as an excellent student and went on to receive a master's in sociology from Columbia University. But Crystal had one more academic goal. Once Crystal decided that she wanted to pursue the law, it remained the central dream of her life in terms of a career. She wanted to argue for change. She was an argumentative person. She was a, a you know an outspoken person. Um, that some of the the strengths of her speech making and her activism were that she was unafraid to speak up. You know, and she always was seeking you know kind of the big important fights in politics and in society. And that drew her consistently to the longing to be in a courtroom where you know argumentation is the way things get done. In 1907, Crystal graduated from New York University's law school. She was second in her class. Despite her obvious talent, Crystal struggled to find a firm in New York willing to hire a woman lawyer. So she headed west to Pittsburgh. There she did the first comprehensive study of workplace accidents. Crystal made major strides in workers' compensation and safety rights, but she decided to focus her energy on women's suffrage. In 1910, she married and moved to Wisconsin. There, Crystal was recruited to be the campaign manager of the Wisconsin Political Equality League. She dove headfirst into the state's campaign for suffrage. One of the things that I was really struck by in working on the book was how much work they put in in Wisconsin organizing across the state with no money, with no vehicles, wearing long skirts, dragging in the mud through all kinds of weather, trying to convince men <laughs> to vote based on their conscience and their set sense of what's right and fair, rather than um, what most men consider to be their self-interest in you know, retaining the vote only for themselves and, and preventing women from voting. It, it was an amazing feat that, that Crystal and others pulled off in putting together that campaign. They faced enormous obstacles from, you know, elected officials, district attorneys, and, and governors throwing up unfair obstacles in their ways to try to defeat them. And no matter what was promised or hoped, no matter what demographic or other advantages they might have had, in the end, in Wisconsin and in many other states, men did not show up to vote for suffrage. It wasn't just men standing in the way of Crystal's goals. Certain national suffrage groups were only trying to benefit white women in their efforts. But Crystal worked to unite suffragists across racial lines and collaborated with Mary White Ovington, the co-founder of the NAACP. Unfortunately, powerful opponents squashed the effort for suffrage in Wisconsin. And these young women were just fed up. They were educated and felt empowered to say, there has to be a better way. You know, if we're going to do all this work, let's do all our work in a combined way to, you know, once and for all solve this problem. Crystal wanted to shake things up. She returned to New York, leaving her marriage and the method of state-by-state -state campaigns behind. She banded together with Lucy Burns, an old friend, and Alice Paul to push for a federal constitutional amendment. They threw themselves into the National American Women's Suffrage Association, or NAWASA. But NAWASA wasn't focused on the federal strategy. And Lucy 
Alice, Crystal bonded on this sense that, you know, this is it. We are done. We are going to organize, use our voices, speak out, be unafraid, and make our demands. Play hardball, basically. Grow up. As Crystal, Lucy, and Alice gained attention for their efforts, they got pushback from the more traditional members of Nawasa. So the triad split off and formed the National Women's Party, or NWP, the first women's political party in the world. The National Women's Party and the National American Women's Suffrage Association, which the women themselves called the National, um, had a number of ideological differences and different approaches to political change. The National Women's Party was comprised of many more younger, more progressive, more educated women who took to direct action. They took to the streets, they took to pickets, they used a lot of sensationalism, they used music and sound. Really modern ideas of, of political activism. They were confrontational, they were unafraid. The national, you know, tended to be comprised of, of, of older women, you know, kind of a previous generation of, of feminists who uh, were used more polite methods, who, you know, would give out pamphlets and um, have meetings in, you know, in parlors to try to convince people to change their minds or in this case to support suffrage. Um, they did not take to the streets. You know, they did not drive around in automobiles, um, which was perceived as a, you know, a very kind of radical thing for a woman to do. It created a lot of tension between the kind of two wings of the suffrage movement. The NWP, with their protests and their marches, their hunger strikes and their car driving, was eventually the group that got women's suffrage over the finish line. The 19th Amendment was finally ratified in 1920. One of the things that people get wrong about the 19th Amendment, I think, is the sense that it was just a natural progression of, you know, the, the, the evolution and the flowering of American democracy. That's just not the case. <laughs> the, you know, the, the extent to which women had to fight for this, you know, fundamental right um, of, of citizenship, of personhood in, in the United States is, is often overlooked. Furthermore, the, the fact that even when the 19th Amendment was, was won, even when the vote was won, it actually continued to discriminate against black women. You know, it didn't, you know, the idea of universal suffrage still was not achieved and still continued to have to be fought for, for many decades after. Crystal saw this gap, so she gave her speech, Now We Begin, to remind people that women's suffrage was only the beginning of their road to equality, not the final destination. As the, the title indicates, she was like, okay, we got the vote. That is the very basic starting point for what we need to do to pursue uh, gender equality. In fact, the 19th Amendment wasn't even ratified yet. It was only passed through Congress before you know, she was like, okay, now we got that, that's gonna happen, and we're gonna move on to you know, the real battles that face us now. She saw the feminist agenda after the vote was won as a kind of tripartite program. She looked at not only the political arena of votes and politics and representation and government, but the economic arena of, of wages uh, and work. 
and finally the private arena of love, of sex, of family. And all of these, um, in her vision, were equally important. They were equally the fronts, the next fronts of feminism in order to achieve gender equality. Equality under the law was the first thing on her agenda. The first couple of years after the vote was won, the NWP pursued campaigns to try to overturn individual discriminatory laws in various states across the country. And, you know, like the state-by-state campaign for suffrage, they worked very, 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 very hard for, you know, pretty modest results. So in 1923, she and other seasoned suffragists, including Alice Paul, drafted the original Equal Rights Amendment. The Equal Rights Amendment was... An answer to that was that, you know, was the evolution of that, was the next phase of that, where you could have something much more comprehensive that would, you know, strike down all of these or attempt to strike down all of these discriminatory laws at one time, at the same time as they would provide a kind of a rallying point for women to move forward into a next chapter, to move forward into a next phase. I think Crystal didn't foresee uh, with the ERA the, the internal divisions that it would spark. The Equal Rights Amendment to her seemed like the most obvious next step, you know, for a lot of reasons, going all the way back to her work on um, industrial accidents with the Pittsburgh survey, you know, when she was first out of law school and unable to get a job practicing law. You know, that experience showed her that if there were laws that were going to uh, be interventions in industrial exploitation, they should apply to everyone. They should apply to men and women alike. The Equal Rights Amendment, though, you know, emerged at a time when labor women, international labor unions, other progressive women had been fighting for decades for social welfare legislation that would at least legally protect women from some of the exploitive qualities uh, in the industrial workplace. And so when the Equal Rights Amendment evolved, you know, when Crystal and others started to try to, to talk about it and advocate for it, it created enormous schisms within, you know, the networks of progressive women that had previously been fully or largely aligned. And I think she didn't expect that degree of, of division. I think she didn't expect, you know, that kind of internal fight. In fact, that internal fight was so intense that in many ways, the National Women's Party, you know, some of those women became, you know, quasi-pariahs. But Crystal was determined. In 1924, Crystal said, to blot out of every law book in the land, to sweep out of every dusty courtroom, to erase from every judge's mind the centuries-old precedent as to woman's inferiority and dependence and need for protection, to substitute for it at one blow the simple new precedent of equality. That is a fight worth making even if it takes 10 years. Crystal didn't know that the ERA's journey would take much longer than 10 years. I think Crystal would have been very frustrated at how long it's taken for us to pass the, the Equal Rights Amendment. You know, she never underestimated how hard things would be, and yet she always maintained, you know, an incredible optimism. She always thought change was possible. She always believed that these things would come. And I think she would have been quite disheartened to see that, you know, something that she thought might might take 10 years, <laughs> you know, um, 
a hundred years on is is still is is still not in place, you know, has still not been achieved. In addition to her innovative work introducing the ERA, Crystal was also a staunch anti-war advocate, a prolific writer, and went on to found what would become the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. Some called her the most dangerous woman in America. Crystal continued to fight for the ERA until her death in 1928. She was just 46. A friend wrote at the time, she was for thousands, a symbol of what a free woman might be. If you want to hear more about Crystal, good news. I've got a new book out, also called Ordinary Equality, that goes into detail about each of the women we've talked about this season and even more we couldn't get into. Get it wherever you buy books. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production. This episode was produced by Maddie Foley, Carmen Borca Carrillo, and Ali Tejeda. <laughs>